You're just in time for a story. Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rai. And I'm your other host, Chris. And we are back, and the carnival's in town, and it's also hell. Yay! <laughs> hell. And we are joined by two guests who have on here before and some fresh blood. So y'all reintroduce slash introduce yourselves. All right. Well, my name is Layla Zerbian, avid fan and fan fiction writer. Hey, what's up? I'm Liv Mamone. I'm a poet, writer, and editor. Hey, I'm Craig, or also just go by C. Zuckerwise. I'm a, I guess a little bit of a writer and I, have, I guess a banker. I don't know. Whatever the fuck I am. Well, welcome and welcome. Yes. So today we're continuing the musical stylings of Darren Lynn Bowsman with The Devil's Fucking Carnival. And this is also just part of that whole string of beautiful shit that is near and dear to my heart that now Chris is basically getting inducted into a cult at this point because he's never well, seen this. I, I was already part of the cult. Well, that's true. But you had seen <laughs> Repo. You've never seen Devil's Carnival. So this yeah. is a whole other fucking ball. This is game. the second cult. <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> that's, that's a good reference on so many levels. It's kind of like when you're into a band and like first you listen to like the, the singles and the radio hits and then you go in and you like do the deep cuts. This is the deep cuts. Like Repo is kind of the one that that more people i'm not going to say most people but like more people would be familiar with and then there's like the really hardcore fans are into the devil's carnival films and then we have american murder song which is like the you know the number of people who who know it are like getting smaller and smaller basically so we were reviewing the devil's carnival which is admittedly my first time watching it um again this is uh, a follow up um horror musical uh, but it's just so much more than that. Uh, by Darren Lynn Bozeman, uh, and uh, Terrence Sudich. Oh, I keep Zudunich. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, um, and it also has a crazy ensemble cast. Much like Repo, there's a lot of uh returning cast members. Uh, but you have everyone like Sean Patrick Flannery, Brianna Evigan, Jessica Lodes, Paul Paul Savino, Emily Autumn. Uh, Terrence himself as Lucifer. Uh, the names go on and on, and uh, so we're gonna provide a quick, uh, a quick recap uh, about the film, which we did not do last week. We did not. <laughs> we did not do that last week. We really should have. Been. No, we did not do that last week. Okay, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> we, we are learning from our mistakes. Um, and 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 also, uh. Well, like every other episode, this is not spoiler-free. So if you haven't watched this movie, please pause the podcast right now, watch it. It's only an hour, and then press play. All right, so I'll give the brief description. So um, unlike most movies with a spoiler, it actually begins with three deaths. Three people die, they go to hell, and then a bunch of demons use Aesop fables to punish each of them based on whatever sin led to their death. That's the movie. That's the movie. The one that hopefully wanted to be a TV show that never happened. Oh my god, did it really want to be a TV show, Layla? I didn't know that. They, well, apparently in the Q&As, they were originally going to be like, yeah, let's just do a bunch of Aesop fables as different episodes. And then the second one happened and clearly went into a new direction. But we'll get to that next 
Right, yeah. Okay, see, I, I knew that they wanted to make a couple of small films. I didn't know that, like, each fable was supposed to be kind of, like, its own. I assumed that it was going to be, like, what they actually did, which was, like, make a couple of movies. I thought I, I That was originally what I had thought was the deal. Okay, that's cool. To my understanding, like, when they originally came up with the idea, because they were still had plans for a Repo 2 and potentially a Repo prequel, uh, and then, you know, all the rights issues kind of came up, they were planning to just do something super short to pass the time to keep us fans entertained until the, move, the Repo 2 came out. And then they started with it, like, okay, well, one's not really enough, and then they went to two, and then they decided, like, three was, like, that nice soft point uh, to make one full, you know, semi-short film. Uh, and then it grew from there. And as they were writing the first one, they actually came up with ideas for Carnival 2, which we did get, and 3, which we're still tragically waiting for. Yeah, there's some debate as to what's happening with The Devil's Carnival 3. We might um, get We don't like, know. Yeah. Like, very recently, we've seen things pop up that Devil's Carnival 3 is happening. But until I hear it from either Sar or Terrence or Darren, I, no, I don't believe it for a goddamn second. He's been wanting the Repo sequel, talk about it for like a, over a decade now, so it's still hard to tell if it's just wishful thinking or if it's actually a plan in action. I mean, I saw it on Darren's Instagram like a couple days, like, like a week ago or something, but even that, I'm like, dude, I, unless I hear it from Terrence and Sar, I am not actually, like, we'll, we'll see. But the difference between devil's carnival and repo is the devil's carnival they still have the rights to like this is still their like birth child essentially repo they no longer have the rights to that's all Lionsgate, and that's never gonna happen they have the rights to devil's carnival still didn't they lose it during alleluia isn't that part of the reason why things went wrong or no they lost they lost something during alleluia which made the tour a nightmare for I don't remember exactly what the deal it was like something in order to get the blu-ray made got sacrificed and it made the the touring experience it, maybe it was money I don't I don't remember Terrence wrote about it on his blog and I read it a couple times but I don't actually remember what the deal was but they do still have the rights to do devil's carnival related things I think it was just a question of like something happened and it was just really difficult and grueling and everybody's kind of like all right i'm tired and that was why they moved on to a fucking murder song which was just so okay just for people who don't know so sar hendelman is terence dunich's um collaborator and uh, i don't remember exactly what he did on repo the Genic opera i think he was like the sound engineer or something i i don't know so he definitely involved with something behind the scenes with the music for repo but he wasn't actually involved in like the creative process of repo he's um but he what he did co-write with terrence both devil's carnival films and his other their other musical project which doesn't have a film element american song so just in case you know we've dropped name, sar's first name a couple times already in this interview and people are probably like, what so yeah that's um yeah that, that's who sar is and we love him very much he's great <laughs> Okay, so Chris, I think we want your first impressions of this film, right? Yes! 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 Very good. So, uh, totally not sponsoring this episode, but thank you, mm -hmm. Amazon Prime, for having this movie for free. Um, although it didn't have um, any of the... Oh, actually, I forget which what was the name of the edition, but there's like this fabled 
a DVD edition with commentaries track and like behind the scenes stuff. I haven't had it. It's the Ringmasters edition, right? Yes, and like that, six copies of this. So well, I was six thousand six hundred and sixty. I have one of them. Okay, they did I, that for this too. Yes. Yeah. Let's see. According to mine, I have number uh, one thousand six hundred and ninety-four. Oh, cool! My God, you're so lucky. We need to have a watch party and then watch yes. the commentary track, or just just go go on tour if they go ever go on tour again, or do a, a shadow cast. We need to go. We anyway. Yeah, I'm rambling. They will. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, much like Mad Max Fury oh. Road, like when I first watched this, like yesterday, um, it was kind of one of the, it was, it felt a lot like the same experience where, um, there was so much spectacle, so much going on that like, it's kind of like sensory overload, but not, not like, not in a bad way. Uh, there was just a lot to process and digest. Like I, that's the same exact thing happened to me when I watched Free Road, which is literally my favorite movie of all time. Like I Mine walked too. out of the- <laughs> Yes. Um, so I, I walked out and I was like, okay, wow. I, I, I'm like, st- it took me like a day to like process it. Then I watched it again and I was like, oh, I, 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 yes, this is hitting all these buttons, and then like, I could. Um, so the same thing was happened to here, where like, um, like the costume design was so extra, so gaudy, and like so sexy and so horrifying at the same time. And then um, the music was was like this great, like this amazing cacophony or mixture or blender of like all these different types of styles, uh, and you just had like these. A range of these amazing range of talent, uh, in terms of acting and um, and choreography and dance and all these kind of art forms. Um, and at the end of it, like, I was like, okay, like, it, it I, the, the credits ended. I I stuck around for the quote unquote post credit scene where um, Jessica Louds uh, had like a one last musical number. Um, so good, it's so really good. good. So good. Uh, and um like I knew I liked it. I knew I liked it. Um and like I was just letting it soak in. And then when I was doing more back uh additional research for the show, just watching follow-up interviews and behind the scenes and commentary, uh, like just seeing how Darren and Terrence, like their thought process, how they went to the movie, like some of the backstory, things started to click again. Then I started watching the movie again, and it's like, okay, yes, yes, okay. Now, now, like, now I have like this baseline. Um, and yeah, it was, I started to appreciate some of these elements, having more of that context. Cause obviously, you guys have, uh, you all have, um, watched this, consumed this many, many more times than I have. So I'm still going still relatively i feel like i'm jumping into the deep end of the pool so yeah. on my second dive i could like you know i i i know where it was so i could explore a little bit deeper and like take a closer look at other things um but yeah generally i love this film like it it it, it, it taps Yay! into yeah yeah it taps into like because i love hell i love like <laughs> morality tales i love <laughs> that should be your guys's like t-shirt design when you start making like your own 
merch. There should just be like shirts that say, I love hell. Love for Yes, Gen I love hell. <laughs> Way to go, Chris. Way to go. Like the first time I ever saw it, really, that like when you actually get to hear Lucifer have his speech, and that was just like that that moment of understanding heaven and hell is what won me over, I think, when I first watched it how many years ago? Eight years ago. Chris, I'm going to make a reference to something that you're not going to understand until you watch Alleluia, but you you said the phrase hitting all points, and for the rest of you, I was like, always hitting on all seven? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> like, that's what I thought. Fuck yes. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, hitting on all sevens. So, yeah, like, I, like, okay, so this is this is going back to me being a huge, like, nerd about not okay so i i wouldn't describe myself as religious but i i love like researching and learning about like cosmology religion and like all like uh like especially like uh, what's it called um oh god what was the, what's like the study of like the end of the word eschatology yeah that's the word there's a word for that oh wow there's a word yeah. for that I Yes. So I love that oh stuff. My like God. my favorite classes in in college was like my intro to theology class or were, were religious classes because they were just like it just broadened my imaginations. And then I took a class all about like uh, Faust and and yeah, and yeah. and just learning all this stuff about like like different interpretations of hell and the devil. Um, and I know this is leading into. Alleluia, where I mean, they, they, he said at the end of the film, where like, oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna tease, we're teasing like a war, a new war against heaven and hell, and then like a lot of the commentary for um, this movie, they were saying, oh yeah, the next episode two is gonna follow um, heaven, um, and with how they described heaven or how they describe like Paul Savino's uh, performance in it, where it's like, well, you can expect like a, a kind of like older type of music but once you listen to it you could see stuff that's fucked up about it on, uh, in its own way and it's like oh yes tell me more tell me more how how about how screwed up heaven is because i want to i like i that that scratches that liberal arts ish yeah. itch oh he's <laughs> gonna love hallelujah guys yeah he's gonna love hallelujah yeah i can't oh, wait oh my god yeah you're in yeah you are Chris, you're in for oh, such a good. treat it's next so week. Because that so is good. a tour stop I went so on. Good. Oh, so really? Great. Yeah, I went on an yeah, Alleluia same, tour stop. Same, and like, yeah. let me fucking tell you, again, another story of Ryan like leaving her body upon meeting all of these fucking people. Uh, whoo, damn, it was a good time. <laughs> that was that was actually, yeah, that was the, my first that tour mine, stop yeah. too, was the Alleluia tour. And that was actually where I met see so i didn't meet right i didn't get to meet you at the alleluia tour but i yeah i met a lot of my my chosen family my uh my my terrence adunich cult family at the first alleluia tour so that's going to be a really special episode for all of us i took my friend sarah and there's a lovely picture of us and i have emily autumn standing oh, right next to me don't remember so the photo good, being though. taken but yeah. i ha i know it was yeah. taken she looked so amazing that night too oh my god like not to go off on too big of a tangent like oh my god like i was excited to meet her regardless and then i took one look yeah. at her and i was like i'm gonna die like this I think is I not actually okay. said i'm going to but, die um, <laughs> yeah yeah i don't remember i don't remember what i said to her i think I might hopefully said, yeah, yeah hopefully if it's oh, no. if it's like this movie crack the door i'm gonna break hell? the fucking door down like, if it's this, anything this sounds, like this movie yeah 
I'll spend eternity torturing terrible people. That sounds good. I'm, I'm okay with it. Oh, but how do you know that you will be the one torturing people? This, this is the shit that I want to get into because one of my things, even having seen this as many fucking times as I have, is how is how we're distinguishing the people who basically run the quote unquote carnival games, which are the people that are stuck there in a, in a weird twisted way. And the people that are stuck there reliving their sins over and over and over again. How, like, how do we distinguish that? What's the distinguishing factor? And I want to run the fucking carnival. I don't want to like be a part of it in that way. We try not to make it a spoiler for, for Chris for next week. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Without, this is purely, like, we're pretending Alleluia doesn't exist despite the rant that just happened. This is purely for <laughs> Devil's Carnival. Like, on first impression. I, I just assumed, I just assumed that hell is still an elaborate bureaucracy. Like, uh, hell, uh, the Lucifer, or Terrence, he's, he's like the arch devil. Yeah. He's the big boss. And then... Every every other carney is just an employee, uh, and they were hired, or they they just they just went in and they were just corrupt and evil enough and messed up enough. And Ter- Terrence has a clipboard. It's like, okay, yeah, you check out. <laughs> I, I, I think you have great qualities. Um, you, we're a carnival, so we don't have very good health benefits, but you'll enjoy your job. That's, that's, that's how I looked at it. Cheaper. I think I think you know, <laughs> the, the devils just you know. You know, they were looking for a job or you know you know what no in terms of of the actual structure of devil ship you know they all started as like little tiny imps you know on the lowest ladder and they had to work their way up it's hell is a meritocracy that's what i think chris i love the way your weird twisted mind works <laughs> i really do so not i, I, I realize i'm gonna break my own oh, rule God, for like two it. seconds but it. chris just to give you some food for thought because I found all of these like tour stop videos at the Vancouver stop, somebody asked Terrence what, uh, like how he approached doing this and how he approached like assigning these people and the characters and things like that. And he said that at a very basic level, he wanted it to be about sin. So for Painted Doll, aka Emily Autumn, her wait, hold on, I have it written down. Her sin was scorn which makes sense for the song that she sang for Lucifer. His was pride. And then he proceeds to end that question with pride cometh before the fall. Oh, I like that. So that. that is just sort of very telling of what to expect. Kind of blew my mind for next week. Okay. Okay. I like it. I dig it. And that's, that's really what sort of kicks all of this off is, each one of these, while Aesop's Fables ties all of this together, it very much, Terence is right, at its basic level, it's, it's, a, it's about the sin that got you into hell that we hear, const- well, not constantly, but being preached about quite a bit, depending on where you live. Uh, and you can see that if you look hard enough and really really dive into all of this but i love that they didn't just make it strictly about that that they then took it one step further and used aesop's fables 
to weave this beautiful story with this awesome fucking music in it. So, yeah. Uh, I have a question. So, is Aesop Fables, like, the the earliest historically documented use of morality tales? Probably not. I feel like Aesop's, Aesop's probably, like, hundreds of years old. Well, I don't what's the oldest because the boy who cried wolf is an example of an Aesop fable. There are always these very short stories. Yeah, isn't Dante's Inferno right. also older than that? Oh fuck. Um Layla? <laughs> so I can't answer that. But he did say some of but you know because like for example the story of grief and his due instead of god it was it was more, it was roman so it was jupiter as the lead god doling out uh, um, roles for all the minor gods so it's probably like, that level of old but i don't quite know the full age because there are some stories that probably have like christian gods in them unless they've been twisted over time and that's referenced in the musical though too like in the song grief there is that lyric um you're you're drowning in the grief of jupiter's water and i was always curious about that because i was always like why are we bringing roman gods into it? that's like a whole other set of symbolism and it's not anywhere else in the text so that's great thank you for thank you for clearing that up for well, I, I looked up the fable because that was grief, especially because Sean Patrick Flannery is singing it in the movie. And Liv, I know you don't necessarily like his performance. I do. But I looked up I looked up the fable for it. And basically it says that grief was the last to claim their due after Jupiter was assigning the gods all of their like off- offerings or privileges. So it was decided that tears shed for the dead would be the price for for grief. So the moral of the fable is do not mourn too long for the dead. Um, Else grief whose pleasure is such mourning will be cause for fresh tears and more grief. Oh, my God. Oh, my literal. Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry. I I know. I said a literal orgasm on mic. I apologize, everyone. So I kind of want to take on that point. because it's, you know, grief will constantly be giving you opportunities. That's actually something I really like about this version of Hell. It's, okay, if anyone has ever seen, for example, the TV show Lucifer, there's kind of, it's, it's, it's very entertaining and a little bit silly, which kind of fits to this. But I actually find there are certain parallels to both versions of Hell. So in both versions, people don't realize that they're dead. And in both versions, you technically have an opportunity to leave, but no one ever does because they are trapped in their own perpetual uh, guilt or their, or at least, okay, so for Lucifer's, it's more of people just can't get let go of the things that are holding them down, the things that are, they're making them guilty. And in this one, throughout the film, each of the three people are given a temptation, an opportunity to refuse the temptation. So, for example, for the girl who's a kleptomaniac, she's constantly just stealing random jewels that are hidden amongst the carnival. For the man who, like for grief, he committed suicide because he, he lost his son, he's constantly searching for that son, even when he randomly turns into a doll and like, clearly this is not your kid. And then the other girl who died because she's constantly allowing herself to be in abusive relationships, and doesn't learn her lesson. So this guy who is quite clearly a bad boy, you know, ripped up bloody shirt, seems to be very handy with knives, 
you know, he's constantly like, oh yeah, just trust me, baby. Just trust me. And she's like, yeah, okay, sure. And so they always have these opportunities. They have their chances to leave and they don't take it. Well, with the exception of John. Yeah. At the very end. At yes. the very end. Although I feel like uh, Lucifer did that. I don't, I think he wasn't quite ready to, to be redeemed yet, but Lucifer were just like, let's just stir up some shit. That, that was something that I, it took me a couple of watches of the movie to actually enjoy that. Because for me, the ending used to be the weakest part where all of a sudden it was just like, I don't want to grieve anymore. And Lucifer's just like, okay. Like, like I, I just remember being like, okay, I know the movie is an hour long, but like, re- re- really? Like, that's all it takes? And then um, after watching it a few more times, I was kind of like, I, I wonder if Lucifer knows that that is possible. For me, it was like, Lucifer did not know that was an option. And once John breaks that cycle, he's like, huh, okay. <laughs> I almost want to disagree a little bit because, like, even like how quickly it's like I was so looking forward to having you a guest in my carnival, and then he just sends him on his way to to heaven. Like, I think in a weird way, like, and it's that I think it's that ultimate act of rebellion of Lucifer's that wanting to almost be God. He's like he wants to send people along. He's giving them that chance, uh, and then obviously going into like you know, which is my personal favorite song, the last main track, "Grace for Cheap." He's offering that. He he wants them to, you know come to their realization and atone almost uh and move on and it's his like little way of saying fuck you to god because you know he can do it even better than god can i I, the way i read it like uh so paul savino we i i didn't realize he was god until the end but we first see paul savino um you know uh in this workshop uh play uh, like trying to paint this doll messes up and he throws it into the box of broken toys and then um to me like uh i mean i guess much much later i we found out that that's like that an allegory for hell uh and then lucifer at the end lets john uh go go back to purgatory and or heaven and then john appears out of the out of the box of broken toys so i feel with that like lucifer is one yes he's saying uh, f you to god and two um uh, he's like deliberately calling out gods, like, "Hey, these are your creations," and you just casually threw them, threw them away, like the moment they like did something else. And like, you're supposed to be guys, supposed to be merciful, you're supposed to be this all powerful, all loving being, and yet you cast away your toys, your subjects so easily. So here, here, you you reap what you sow, you take responsibility of your toys, and that's that's what I thought like Lucifer was doing. And that's his impetus for starting this war. Like, hey, I'm I in a way I'm a better father because like you know uh, I'm I'm giving them a second chance. You just cast them down to me. And you left them with nothing. So that's that's what I that's how I read it. That's a really really bitching analysis, Chris. Oh my god, ah, I love it. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't believe that I blocked this line out after having seen it a million times. But like today when I was watching it for the podcast, um, I I heard for the first time. Lucifer's line to John, um, I'm not in the business of murdering innocent children. That's God's jurisdiction. And and like I I kind of love and this'll this'll be something that kind of gets drawn out a little bit more in Alleluia again, but also like the idea that I think Lucifer is empathic. Like as much as he he is the controller of hell, he does want the people under him 
to to suffer because they are guilty. Um, John is not guilty, and and Tamara is also not guilty. Like like it's a little you know at first glance it's a little victim blamey. It's like yeah, her boyfriend kills her and she gets sent to hell. It's such a weird you know it's a little bit like oh okay that's weird. But what's interesting to me about this particular movie is like of the three. Um, sinners that we follow, only Marywood, the the thief, is actually like doing something biblically wrong. Or no, I'm a liar because uh, suicide is considered biblically wrong. But like in a kind of larger moral sense, the other two characters are are um they're not doing anything like like that you would consider you know bad in the in the christian sense they just kind of like they get hurt by other pe- other circumstances and then they go to hell which i think is a really interesting thing so it's not just like it isn't just people who wound other people it's also like people who get involved in situations that maybe they could have gotten themselves out i i don't know i'm not exactly sure what the film is saying about that but i think it's really interesting and there's another movie that i absolutely adore um, called What Dreams May Come, which is a movie where a man dies and then his wife, in in her grief, uh, commits suicide and she goes to hell and he has to journey down to hell to uh, to retrieve her. And I so I do love the idea that that in in a literary sense that suicides go to hell and like what that actually means. And I do love that John's the one that it, that is that is granted clemency because I think even Lucifer kind of like understands how totally unfair that is. Going back to Chris's point of like maybe Lucifer is the better father because he looks at John and he's like, you know, this is grief. This is not um, something that, that, that injures the world, but yet God has like tossed these people away and just not given them other options. So I, I do love that reading of it. So something I picked up uh, watching with the commentary uh, with uh, Terrence and Darren, um, they're talking about, you know, in the original Scorpion, the frog, it's really told from the perspective of the scorpion where they decide to kind of flip it on its head and have it really more from her focus. Uh, and, that, you know, she's constantly kind of being given these warnings. And it's not just a matter of, of a victim blaming, but she, she doesn't learn. And that's, I think, in some ways, in a way, her sin, that she's given these chances and chances and given the same lesson, and she just keeps going down the same path. And, you know, she never learns anything from it. And, you know, it kills her twice, essentially. I do want to say something to Liv's point. There is a line in grief where it sort of balances out what Lucifer says of, I'm not in the business of killing children. That's God's jurisdiction. Um, There's a line in grief where they're talking about orphaned by heaven where no child is spared. So that is just that for me like makes lucifer saying that all the more impactful and really just like punches me in the nards because that 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 fucking hurts listening to him say that but in terms of mary wood i did find some intriguing like interpretations um in terms of like the scorpion and the frog fable and it sort of has a lot to do with what Liv was saying so the most common interpretation of all of this is like 
people with vicious or self-destructive personalities who um, like can't resist hurting other people. But there was also uh, a French sociologist who decided that all that the uh, Aesop fable was a metaphor for Machiavellian politicians. And I was like, I'm not. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, who sort of like delude themselves through their like, quote unquote, unconscious tendencies to rationalize their the plans that they have. But this but this one, I actually really liked there was a philosopher that said, although there were plenty that there have been plenty of fables that sort of warn you against trusting vicious people, except for this one, none of the other ones that are the villains suicidal, except for the scorpion and the frog. So the scorpion is irrationally and very fully aware of its own self-destructiveness. So like, that's why I don't mind Tamara being in hell and sort of, I don't really, I, I sort of don't almost see it as victim blaming for that reason, because it's all very intentional, I think. Okay, that I really like that interpretation. So I'm officially like, I'm recanting my position. Um, because I'll, also, what what I also like about it is like, the the thing of like, you you never meet anyone who thinks they're a bad person, right? Like like you know you you kind of very rarely would you meet anyone like if you asked them would think they were going to hell. So like I, you know maybe there there's a little bit more subtlety to the reading of the three sinners because they all feel like they're in the right for what they feel and do and they've wound up in this place and they're all kind of like Alice in Wonderland landing their way through it like what am I doing here? Um and that's the whole point they don't know why they're there they don't know you know what what they've done to land them there and the whole point is that hopefully you would learn and if you learn what's got you there how you play your part has got you here is a line in title track the devil's carnival so i guess that's that makes a lot of sense that particular reading of it because that would put tamara in a, in a position of like she doesn't know what she did and and maybe even kind of the viewers don't even know what she did but that doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve to be there which is interesting this all just circles back to the idea that this whole thing is sort of a parallel to being in a almost self-inflicted hell like you it's about how you play your part when you're alive but how you played your part is what got you into the position that you're in in the first place so it's it almost sort of the carnival is almost serving as a self-inflicted hell like they're not necessarily there because they're bad people with the exception of Marywood. They're there because they're just unable, and again, a, a John is the exception to this rule, they're there because they are unable to learn from their mistakes. So they're just eternally part of this carnival. So food for thought, and it's something that literally just came to my mind like five minutes ago, despite the like, hundreds of times I probably watched this movie. We talk about heaven a lot, and we talk about the carnival a lot, and they never specifically mention the term hell in either movie, really. How about the possible concept that the carnival maybe it's more of like a purgatory and that's why they're getting those chances to learn and do that. You know, they learn their lesson, they get to move up and maybe Tamara now has actually maybe been downgraded. Maybe she's actually going to hell. Maybe she becomes a carny in some form. Mary Wood, we won't get into because she's actually a part of Alleluia, but you know, there's definitely different, I guess, facets to that, that maybe there's more to it than we're even seeing. And maybe that's something that if we do get another movie, we can examine a little further. In. I feel I feel a little guilty because I'm going to have to correct that because Ticket Keeper says near the beginning about the scorpion, a rebel in hell. How original. 
True, true, yes. Yes, okay. Okay, I stand corrected. But I do like that read where, like, Tamara, she suffers the temptation for the thrice, and this time, at the end, it's with Lucifer. So, I, I, um, yeah, the the idea that Tamara just becomes a carny in the end, like, that's really cool. Oh, she's definitely a permanent installation. She's a permanent fixture, yeah, for sure. Layla, can we write that fanfic? Can we write the, the Tamara becomes a carny fanfic? That would be amazing. Do it! We could always use fresh perspective in the world of writing, clearly. Okay, in terms of costuming, is Tamara still wearing the poodle poodle skirt? No, she's wearing her, her In All My Dreams I Drown nightgown at the end, so probably that. Which is a very, like... So, when we... I, I, I like... And this was probably... Based on our repo episode and the fact that Liv talked about how she brought up what the guys did for that without really knowing it. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but for Tamara's final test, they put her in the most vulnerable state possible. They put her on display in front of everyone in a nightgown for her like final attempt at redemption. And that, I feel like that says a lot. I wonder what would happen if, John didn't go that extra step because even look at Marywood. Marywood clothes and then she's topless to get whipped. So when you're at your most vulnerable, when you're about to fail, I mean, when you're about to fail your tests, you are literally at your most vulnerable in every sense of the word. You are alone. You are undressed almost quite literally in Marywood's case. And I, I, I wonder if that was just sort of something that just happened or how intentional that was. That's true. I never even really, I never even considered that. That's a really good extended metaphor. Wow. John is the only one that maintains everything about him. The, he, he goes out the same way he came in. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so good. <sighs> <laughs> so I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess if he had finished grieving, maybe they'll have him like, you know, old style madness where you start ripping your clothes off maybe that'll happen <laughs> that's a fanfic someone could write <laughs> get rid of the coat get rid of the hat actually i think he already go- did he already lose the hat he must have no he did lose the hat before emily autumn bit his ear oh. off something that i totally forgot happened by the way like like <laughs> i i was watching the movie again today and i'm like what i just completely like forgot that scene existed and now i'm kind of like okay is that something about like not listening is that is that like a metaphor for like because like right because the interesting thing before john dies the last thing we hear is his wife saying open the door you're scaring me and i think something that i came across when i was when i was thinking about that was like is his sin what he does to the other people in his life he thinks his sin is what he, whatever he did to Daniel, whatever, whatever the, the circumstances were surrounding his son Daniel's appearance. But I think his sin is more like you're, you're forsaking the other people that love you in your life because of this, this grief that you feel. So is, is the biting off of the ear like symbolic of like not listening to the calls of the other people who are on the other side of the door as you're like in that, that room of your grief? Excuse me. Sorry. I just like wrote a poem. Excuse me. Um. Yeah. 
But I do, I, I, I agree with you though. And I do think that there is uh, a twofold appearance in that there's definitely that side of it, but also there are people who do believe that suicide might not necessarily be like a cry for help in that sense, but people who attempt or do it feel like no one is listening to them. So there's also that side of it too. Mm. Oh, that's a good, yeah. I like, I like that. That's good. I didn't think of that. That's really good. So he's, he got his ear bitten off because he wasn't listening in this respect, but don't forget, like if I'm John's wife, I'm not letting any locked doors happen in that house either. So there was, there's like a twofold argument for no one, for nobody listening, period. Yeah. And also like, he's not listening to the rules. Like he's like, you know, he's, He's like, he's like running, he's like saying all the, all this stuff that doesn't make any sense about like, if you hurt my boy, I'll kill you. Or like, I know you people have him or whatever. And it's like, he's not actually like paying attention to his own surroundings and like following the instructions given to him by the carnival itself. So maybe it's, it's also something about like how grief robs you of your ability to like actually see what is happening around. I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm all. I'm down. I'm down a rabbit hole now. I'm like, oh my god. I mean, like he, his his ear is ripped off. He's literally losing his senses. You know, that's yeah. Oh my god, that's good. There's also a bit of a flip on that. She's like at the in that last scene when he's in with with Lucifer, and you know he comes in and he sees you know Daniel, his son, and he hugs him. He said, "What did I tell you? Did you didn't listen to me? I told you never to run away from me." So like his son kind of did the same thing, and presumably. That's probably what led to, you know, Daniel's death. But he's kind of falling down and doing the same thing that caused his son to be murdered or die or whatever happened. I don't think we give the guys enough credit sometimes for how deep they do get. Seriously, no. This is definitely the movie of the three, of the, of the kind of Terrence Dunich musical oeuvre. This is the one I watch the least often. Like, it, it kind of goes, like, Alleluia, repo and then this is and i think just because this one is so short it just never occurs to me to kind of like throw it on in the background like i do with the other two films but like that and of course that means like i've watched this maybe 200 times as opposed to like the 200,000 times that the other two cumulatively have have gotten to but you know watching it today i was like this is an hour long a- and just the level of craftsmanship on all levels that went into movie is like it, it it boggles the mind it's like you know the the camera turns to like an ensemble member that you see in one shot and they're like fully costumed and they're like a fully existing character on screen even if they both the camera just swings to them and then just swings back it's like there was just so much going and they made it in fucking seven days too which is like what yeah insane and they like they only had three and a half weeks to prepare to make this movie, and they were shooting only at night for those seven days in the middle of winter. Which, I mean, to me, that sounds like nothing because it's L.A. I don't know what twenty degrees Fahrenheit means for you guys. So I was, I was like, ah, it can't be that cold. Really, I thought they shot it in Vancouver. No, that was Repo. Re- oh, it was Repo. Oh, Repo got Vancouver. shot in Vancouver. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did get their shit stolen, though. That's right, they did. I forgot about how they got their shit stolen by crackheads. Yes. They got they got the movie stolen. We almost did not have Devil's Carnival. Wait, someone stole like the real film? What? 
Yeah, so basically all of the hard drives and shit that had the movie on it got stolen and the cops were called. Everyone was confronted with this, but the cops were like, they and I I was watching one of the tour stops and Darren was telling the story on stage. Basically, the cops looked at them and said, well, we can't go in this house where these kids are if you can't tell us definitively that you saw them take the shit, even though they know that they had everything in there. and. Uh, apparently one of the camera guys had come back from uh, lunch and said, so what's going on? And they're like, well, the movie got stolen, but we can't get it back because the cops won't go in unless they say that someone uh, actually saw them take the shit out of the van. And the camera guy goes, well, fuck it. I'll do it. So he did. He basically lied to the cops to get the movie back and they got the movie back, obviously. But I think the best part of that story is Terrence chased these kids down while he was still in Lucifer makeup. Oh. <laughs> it's like, you commit a sin, the devil will literally come after you. So imagine being like an addict and seeing something like that. Like that shit is going to send you all the way to Narcotics Anonymous. Can you believe being that kid in NA being like, all right, so here was my rock bottom. I literally saw, I literally saw the devil. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like, not only does does Lucifer chase you down, he just starts singing, like, this seven-minute ballad about what why stealing is bad. And then and then you feel, not only do you feel so horribly guilty that you you give the, the film back and you clean up your life, I, that's my hand cannon. But also, like, if you're us, if you're us, you're, like, turned on a little bit. No, I turn around and I'm like, take me. Like, who needs the D.A.R.E. Yeah, program yeah. when you have that? I don't, like... <laughs> yeah, really. And it's not just Lucifer. It's, like, clown... It's Jester clown Lucifer, Lucifer, too. It's fucked up. In a bathroom. In, like, a Hugh Hefner silk <laughs> yes. bathroom. <laughs> so, I just thought it's, like, funny. And not as sort of a change of topic thing, but I wonder how interesting Hell could be, because I decided while rewatching this movie to take a look at some of the 666 rules of hell. And there is some weird shit. Oh, yeah. You know they're all there in the end credits, though. Not, well, not all. But yeah, I looked at a few of them. And there, there's some of them are some are silly because it's things like no crying wolf, shark, or Sasquatch. <laughs> no ballyhoo because I said so. It actually says because I said so. But then there's weird ones like no watching movies. And no switching the batteries on remote controls, which suggests that there are batteries and remote controls in hell. Yeah, I, I always figured that hell was technologically up, though. Because, again, this is getting into Alleluia, but Alleluia has a, a very um, kind of, like, like slightly, like, I, w I don't want to say ancient, but slightly, like, their their technology is not up to snuff. They're still using Dictify. Like, you know, they're they're kind of not quite up. And I always got the sense that hell was a little bit more like if if heaven is kind of a 30s, 40s um, deal, hell is more of like a 50s sort of a situation. So like they're a little bit more, like a little bit more technologically advanced. In, but that was just, you know, from what like a couple of little things from the production design. And stuff. But yeah. I mean, movies did come out probably like movies did exist in the starting in like. Well, they had like silent films and stuff in the 30s, right? So, yeah, I guess they just wanted to make a rule for that for some reason. On a larger scale, though, I love that one of the things I really enjoyed thinking about that was like, I love that hell, there are rules 
but they're kind of based on on bullshit. Like they're based on nonsense. Like, and I, if you think about, for me, I'm a lapsed Catholic, so be like, it, it definitely tickles the the let's trash talk God, you know, pleasure center of my brain. It's definitely like something that I love. But like, I think that there is some sort of commentary in that on how religion is based on on rules that don't necessarily make sense for like actual lived experience and so when lucifer says i am the excuse you give when you cannot follow the rules i I think that ties back into what we were saying about lucifer having slightly more empathy than god and like being able to understand the real challenges of being human better than god but there are also like these nonsense rules that govern the world of the carnival which which ostensibly like would have been created by god maybe i somebody somebody refresh me theologically like you know wouldn't if god created everything wouldn't god have also created hell Mm, yes the paradox (laughs) (laughs) i mean technically he did because in that sense he 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 kicked Lucifer out of heaven, so and then and then there was hell. He had to have a place to put him, right? I mean, I don't know. Either either he had a place to put him, or the idea or the whole thing of God um, kicking Lucifer out of heaven then sort of like jumped hell because when Lucifer landed, he made hell. Either way, God's responsible. Or again, if you look at this as a giant bureaucracy, like it's it's all part of the same system. So heaven is in the system of saving souls, or like or or like cultivating good souls. But and, 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 cultivate, I like that. Better. Cultivating, cultivating, cultivating good souls. And when you have like, and you know what's you know what's a heavy handed, ham fisted way of, of 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 creating obedience and and conformity and and you know. St- Sticking people in line so they'd be all little good, good little boys and girls. You create the bad place. You create hell. You guys like, hey, you don't want to be like this person. Uh, you don't want to be. You don't want to be like John. You don't want to be like Tamara. Right. Like you. You need somewhere to act as a detriment. You need somewhere to act as like, a, okay, we don't want to go there. And, and it also it, it does give the impression that like, and I always wondered this kind of on a larger scale in terms of religion and how it's like. Technically, Lucifer does still work for God. Like, like technically, I mean, and so the idea of, of, um, of, you know, starting a war with heaven, it does feel like, like Lucifer has been stuck in that same system as Chris, you know, is saying. And then the ending of this movie is like him realizing whether he knew it or not. I always read it as kind of, he, he sees what John goes through and he realizes the possibilities um either way it's like he is breaking out of the system that he has been a part of but he is still a part of it he is still doing something for the system so yeah and if you believe in like the christian idiotism of like you know quote-unquote god has a plan uh when you look at the abrahamic religions especially like judaism uh islam and christianity in particular they are eschatological uh, or, oh god, what was the other word? I don't remember the word, but it has a very definite end, or I'm sorry, beginning, 
present and end like each especially like you know christianity you, you, you could point to the book of revelations where okay this is exactly how it's going to end like the the seven seals will open and then like the the world will be cast in the in the age of tribulation there'll be a thousand years of darkness raised by the beast and the devil and but then it's gonna happen it's gonna be all good in the end so when you think of it that way where like god is like this grand architect yeah, that got, like got got some bad stuff's gonna happen, but it's all part of the plan. Uh, and so whether Lucifer doesn't acknowledge it or not, he's kind of part of that system. But what I like, what I when I when I think about it that way, uh, and the end of Devil's Carnival, I think Lucifer's aware of that, but he's like, no, you know what? Screw that. Like, uh, yeah, yes, I'm part of the plan, but I'm gonna mess with a little bit of small details, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spit it back in God's face. So that's what he did, you know, sending John back up. Like he's like, God has his own system, his own way of doing things. He's, he's in his toy shop. And then Lucifer's like, no, you know, I'm technically doing what's supposed to be doing. But, you know, I'm, I'm also having my cake and eating it too. Uh, that's what I think about it. I love how excited Chris is getting about this. I'm sorry. This, this, I'm a, I'm a yeah, seriously. <laughs> No, no, it's good because you, I'm listening to what you're saying and it just gets me so excited for you to watch Alleluia because you have no fucking idea what you're about to see and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> One more reason why Chris absolutely needs to meet Terrence and Sar so that he can like sit Terrence down and talk all about all this theology and like blow Terrence's yeah. fucking mind. Like that, that's what needs to happen. Okay, I want to ask what I asked la um, last week repo i, I want to ask what who everybody's uh favorite performance is and what their favorite song is because we have been focusing on like john and tamara and mary with word and there's just such an amazing cast of people we should just talk about all the other characters real quick i think i know what c's favorite song is but i could be wrong oh i, I i'm curious what do you think mine is hubble cloud oh fuck yes yeah <laughs> yeah that's a brilliant performance I've been moody from death, Five Finger Death Punch. I would have never guessed. Oh my god, that baritone. I, that that final note, that like final note that like goes up a little bit. Oh my god. It, it, oh god, it's so good. It's so good. It's a brilliantly done scene. I know for myself, I was actually kind of tied when it comes to best performance because one of them is Ivan Moody's performance one for A Penny for a Tale. I also really just enjoy Marywood. Brianna, I, I don't know how to, I'm trying to say this in the nicest way possible. She's the only person who acts like a normal person to me. Like, like she gets frustrated with the hobo clown. It's just like, fetch me a supervisor. Like, what are you doing? Whereas John, and I'm, I live will under, hopefully understand this, but I actually get really confused by his performance. He's always hunched, like his his shoulder muscles must be awful at this point. Uh, but the way he speaks doesn't always flow like a normal human talks. Whereas for Mary Wood, I can see this person existing. It makes sense to me. She, And it's funny because she really got hired very last minute. Like she got a phone call saying, they're being like, hey, you want to come to my house? We're in the middle of recording songs. You're going to record a song and then you're going to be in a movie. And she just did it. And yet she oddly enough had the best performance in the whole film. She also has a really, really fascinating voice to listen to. If you, when you listen to Beautiful Strangers, she actually, there's just something about 
the the combination of the high and the raspy in her voice is just really 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 fascinating to to keep listening to so yeah that that's a really good performance and i love like even from watching on the uh the commentary like she showed up for, for her first day filming like okay we're gonna do this scene you're gonna be topless and she was just like apparently like okay no problem and just like stripped like no one is even like fully ready for it she's like all right fine i'm naked and like apparently everyone i'm like running to watch this performance like so like impromptu what I what I think, just like background stuff about all of this that I just think is fun is right before that scene, right before Mary Wood gets whipped, you have the kiss the girls scene where, uh, in in a in a movie where you have a week to shoot this, Alexa Vega broke her wrist and didn't tell anybody for three days during Kiss the Girls. <laughs> Because she didn't want to delay the week-long production. <laughs> like, you can also, like, you see it happen. Like, I, I know where it is, so I see it every time. And I think, like, off mic, when we were talking in the private chat, I was like, I'm about to watch Alexa Vega break her wrist. Okay, you need to show me. You need to, like, I need to come to your house and, to, like, I need the exact scene. The exact frame. I'm curious. I'm actually curious about this because I was watching the commentary today. They had the Repo reunion commentary. So it was Terrence Darren, um, Bill Mosley, Ogre, Alexa Vega. And it was during um, the Devil's Carnival, like the intro song. And she says in the commentary, and I just broke my wrist. So now I'm confused because yeah, I, I saw that part in Kiss the Girls. I was like, okay, she just broke her wrist. But then I watched that commentary. I was like, wait, I thought she broke her wrist, wrist later. So I don't know. Now I'm confused. I mean, it's possible that she doesn't remember exactly because, you know, you don't shoot things in order. They had, they probably yeah. were all on a lot of caffeine having shot it in seven, you know, like it's possible that she doesn't remember exactly what it was. I have a fun, another fun thing for Alexa Vega that I thought was hilarious because I ended up, I was bored and it's a short movie. So I watched all three commentaries. So I listened to that Repo reunion tour and Alexa Vega talks about how um, she actually worked with Sean Patrick Flannerly. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Um, like many years ago when she was a young child. And so for her, it was weird because she totally had a crush on him. So seeing him as an adult was a little awkward, but I'm going to make this better. I then watched the other commentary where he is doing a commentary with Emily Autumn, Mark Center, and uh, and. Uh, Brianna Evigan and he talks about how and he talks about how you know it's weird because I worked with Alexa years ago and you know we kind of developed like a father-daughter relationship so it's weird seeing her now as an adult and I'm like oh no yeah you two should not have I hope you don't listen to each other on these commentaries oh god it's worse it's worse and also uh Mark Center and Emily Autumn met on this movie and are married and I think are married now or if they're not married they're engaged they're engaged. Okay. Yeah. And she bit his lip during that scene and then that was it. Oh my god. I mean I mean, you know what? Fair. Fair to Mark Center, quite frankly. It's like, yeah, no, I that makes perfect sense to me too, bro. But he is actually they're so sweet together. They're adorable. When I went to the the Alleluia tour, uh Mark Center stood outside with me for I think like a half an hour and just talked me about how great he thinks Emily Autumn is and like played me like a like a demo on of her, one of her newest songs on his phone like he was just so 
excited to be with her. It was so cute. They're and now she together. lives in New York, which makes me doubly happy. She does. Yeah. Every time she posts on Instagram and it's like, I know that place. I've been there. If I, I ever saw her in the wild, I think I would shit my pants. <laughs> the other night she was at Phantom of the Opera and my and I, I couldn't handle it. My my like theater heart was just not, not ready to cope with those images. My favorite thing about them as a couple is that all these years laid out, was it eight years since this movie was filmed? And every time she posts anything about him, she still calls him Scorps. I know, it's so cute. That's so sweet. I love Scorps. It's so cute. I adore it. Rye, what's your favorite uh, song and performance? Ah, fuck. See, this is, this is hard because Repo, I definitely have a favorite, as we all know. Um... But for Devil's Carnival, it's very hard for me because I, with a huge, huge obvious bias, just want to say anytime Terrence opens his mouth, whatever he's singing, <laughs> everything in the world. But there are so many other talented voices that are in this film. And I think if I'm going to put my obvious bias aside, I think it has to be this ridiculous three-way tie which also comes up with like most of which also like compromises like most of the movie but it has to be this like ridiculous three-way tie between grief um prick and, and penny fur tail because even though i love listening to Rihanna sing with ogre or as ogre or as the twin because her in the twins outfit is just aces but it's not it's a it's a great song and i love listening to it but it's not my favorite performance it's this really weird three-way tie definitely between grief um prick goes the scorpion's tail and penny fur tail i i think grief is low-key the best song in the first movie and like i i didn't know because i hate sean patrick flannery's performance in that song so much that like so I heard I, I heard a video of Sar Hendelman doing it um, himself at one of the early uh, con uh, performances for the for the movie, and I remember like calling up my best friend and being like, "Oh my god, this is a beautiful song!" And I had no idea. But you know what? I, as I was watching it today, I actually realized that I don't think it's all down to Sean Patrick Flattery. I think it's like. I do think that his performance is weird. I think that the the sinister way that he is singing the song actually doesn't jive with the grieving father that we are supposed to be seeing. But also, like a lot of it, I think is technical, and I don't I don't know anything about that kind of thing. So, like, I'm totally talking out of my ass. But like the the lip sync is off, and the the editing is is weird. Like, there are a couple moments where like he's singing and his mouth isn't moving. Like, like I I think. I think part of it is that too, where I'm just like, I, I, I don't get it. And I also don't get like, he sounds more like the way Lucifer also is singing that his part in that song. And I feel like they should have really, really different emotional centers. And Sean Patrick Flannery sounds so sinister in the way he's hitting those notes that I just don't, uh, the, the, the song just doesn't jive for me at all. Um, and, but then when I actually like sat down and listened to the lyrics, I oh my god this is gorgeous like for me I, I can't get over like the 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 I don't want to say like the improvement but like how different Repo is lyrically from Devil's Carnival like I, I'm a poet so for me the lyrics are everything and they're the most important thing and, and for Repo the lyrics are serviceable 
because you have to tell a story. That's that's what they do. That's what their function is. This is like I could sit down and read these songs like poems. Like I could sit down and like go through every line of the of the songs and be like, okay, what kind of symbolism have we got going on here? And what what's that devil that double meaning and stuff? And I think that grief is just really good for that. Um that said, it is not my favorite song. It's definitely not my favorite performance. I fucking hate that performance. Uh, no diss, no diss, no diss to Sean Patrick Flannery because I do love him, Boondocks forever. But like, yeah, I can't with. But um, I think and, and I I agree, right? My my favorite song really shifts given on like what mood I'm in because I think all the songs are so incredible. It's really hard to like. This is my solid favorite. Um, it it does shift around a lot, but I do think that mine is Grace for Sale like yeah just, we've got grace for fucking cheap oh my god it just the combination i mean because again right we know that that we think that terrence has the most voice in the entire world or else we like would fucking be here but also like what what keeps me coming back is like terrence is actually a really good actor which is something that i kind of didn't see on on the first couple of examinations like if you look at that performance versus the performance of Grave Robber and, and the way of like acting out from behind all that makeup. It's like, man, you're actually really, really good at this. Like you're actually really good at what you do. And and just the the lyrics of that song, again, I could just sit down and dissect them. I just love them so much. And I, I just think that there's not a single word wasted. And and that was was really where I sat down and I was like, fuck is Star Hendelman? Because it was obvious that like Terrence was obviously like doing such bigger things lyrically and thematically. Music was so much more complicated. And then I was like, who the fuck is this guy, Sar Hendelman, who he's working with? Like, obviously, whoever he is, he's really doing amazing things for Terrence. So yeah, it's it's um it's Grace for Sale, big time. I just I love it so much. Chris, do you have a favorite yet? Uh so again, like I feel like I should rewatch finish rewatching or watch it a couple more times or at least like listen to the soundtrack on repeat but um when i on my first watch through i think the one that re- the song that really really captured my attention uh I, I i guess the sequence um uh i i i'm I, i'm hesitant to say it, it's a tie i kind of see them bridge together uh as one giant thing because they're all part of the same act or part of the same fable but i i thought i was really drawn in by beautiful stranger and penny for her tail um uh i i think visually speaking like um i thought it was so so cool that ogre the twin just you know just having um having him turn into um uh marywood and it being like a auditory and visual representation of the fable where like she doesn't recognize herself or all these jewels and she doesn't see the folly of her own ways. And I think how that entire production fits with the, just with the lyrics itself. Um, I thought I, I'm, I don't, I don't have a really good ear for music. Like I'm, I'm like terribly tone deaf. Um, so I can't really like, so I, I thought that was really fascinating how you were talking about her voice of this, of it being like this strange, high but raspy fusion hybrid it's like oh that's that's really cool i can't normally hear that so that's i thought it was i thought her performance was great and then um ivan moody like oh my god his performance just like that deep 
voice it just it just was like just reverberated my core it was like yo that's it was chilling it was awesome and then he was i felt like he had such incredible pathos in that uh and, and pity for a tale um yeah so th those are my two on my first watch so um uh that could change definitely as i rewatch it but i think that those two songs was what really clicked for me it's like oh okay this is this is like this is great this this is where it's like this this is amazing this is it really got my brain moving um i don't know if anyone remembered the first watch through and had a similar experience with one of these songs like does anyone remember that type of thing my first watch through it was definitely i was all about um prick goes the scorpion's tail because i was just yeah i was so blown away by emily autumn and i went into like such a huge rabbit hole with her music and who she was and, and where the fuck she came from and i i saw in one of the um tour stops darren described her voice as a demonic angel and i i think that that like very that fits because between the way she sings and her lyrics and the things that she sings about and all and the projects that she does it is very on brand and so it's so perfect for a descriptor so yeah it was definitely prick goes the scorpion's tail for a long time until i started to appreciate the other voices that were a part of that movie absolutely for me too yeah and also because i i don't remember if i was a fan of hers before i heard that song but i i think i i think i was i think i i think i remember being a fan i i i know i wasn't this made me a fan so i was excited it was interesting for me. I didn't actually like her at all when I first saw the movie. It wasn't until Hallelujah when I really like fell in love with Emily. Um, but I actually I went to two shows on the original Devil's Carnival tour. So right from the start, um, um, I just completely brain farted. Um, what's the name of the song? The last fucking song. Um, oh no, wrong movie. Grace, Grace Russell. Thank you. I'm just I'm sitting here and Carrie just my wife just walked in the room and I just lost all train of thought. Um, Grace for Sale, just, it took me so much, like, just the power of the song and just being, you know, in the fandom since when Repo first came out, like, my love for Terrence in a way. I've always joked that, like, Terrence's voice can take a straight man's pants off. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, it's just, and obviously being, you know, somewhat of an atheist myself and, like, liking that and I'm like, and all of that, like, I love just that little fuck you to heaven kind of thing of the song and, you know, and then going back, we briefly talked before about how short the movie was and how it doesn't even feel that way. I remember sitting in the theater and the lights came up. I'm like, what the fuck was that? Like, how is the movie over already? Like, how is that only 50, 55 minutes? And it's just, you know, the, I guess the power of the movie, it just blows you away. But I do actually. So wait a minute. I have a question for, for C before we get to Layla's favorite moment song. See, you were in the theater for this for this tour. Yep. You like saw this tour twice. What the fuck was that like? Because that's something that I I mean, speaking from me, I can't I can't speak on that experience. I know Chris can't. I don't know about living like that must have been one fucking doozy of an experience. It was really cool, especially because none of us, you know, in the theater. It was a packed theater in Boston. Nobody really knew what we were getting. 
you know, the soundtrack was released like online a few days earlier. So I heard a couple little bit of some of the songs. Um, but like, you know, all we have is a, a very basic concept. I didn't know anything about that it was going to be about Aesop's Fables until the movie started. Um, and she said this like packed theater of people like completely clueless what they're walking into. Uh, and I think the same thing happened. I, unfortunately, I was just a drop too late that I missed the, the repo tour originally. But with that, even most people who were into it in the beginning got into it because they were fans of Saw and they heard about it because of, you know, their love of uh, Darren Lindausman. Um, and I'm sure in the same way, some people like, what the fuck is this? This is the weirdest shit ever. Um, but yeah, it was just absolutely mind boggling at the time. But I remember the lights coming up and like just being almost in shock. Like it was just such a not a perfect film, but, <clears throat> you know, such a good story that just completely gripped you. Oh, I wish I could have. I wish. I wish. Layla. Okay. Uh, it's sort of a multiple choice issue. So, well, it, because, okay, so I have like the same kind of issue that Liv has when it comes to, like, for example, for grief for her, she doesn't really like it until it's the Sar Handelman version. For me, I'm currently regularly listening to a version of Trust Me sung by Terrence Adunich during the Alleluia tours, and it sounds phenomenal. And then, um, I have a couple others, though I kind of want to bring this to a story. So another big favorite, and it's a popular one amongst most of the fans, is In All My Dreams I Drown. Though it was technically in a deleted scene, it was originally going to be the third song of the movie, and then they figured it was kind of a redundant scene and moved it on. But everyone loves it. And it loves it so much that some of you will know about this. A couple days ago, we were playing an online game and one person who was a fellow fan had their three-year-old around and she loves that song and she sang it for us it was the sweetest goddamn thing i i hope you get the chance to tell him that story because oh my god like that's that's amazing wow i wish i had been there for that it really was i nothing i you know i'm trash for Terrence but nothing really beats it listen Layla I I cannot believe I forgot about this nothing beats listening to a goddamn three-year-old singing in all my dreams I drown it was the cutest fucking thing I've ever heard so sweet and it's you know the funny thing is is that you know we listen to these strange morbid songs and then I end up just adopting them like even when I have my niece around I'll sing her that one or like uh, wake up or lullaby from American Murder Song and just, you know, let's indoctrinate the, the little baby goths early. In many ways, you know, that works as well with In All My Dreams I Drown because when you think about it, especially in comparison to like the lullabies we grew up listening to, they're kind of fucked up they you are know, in, fucked in the up. long run of them. And, you know, in, in All My Dreams I Drown fits that theme so perfectly. It is kind of a lullaby in a way. Um, so like, he, hearing that, hearing a three-year-old sing it, like, like we would have sung, you know, um, Rock by Baby when we were that age or something. It's, you know, really a nice, you know, turnaround and kind of passing the torch in a way. It does feel a little bit like a precursor to to a lot of the songs in American, you know, songs like Lullaby and Wake Up. And I, I think that they really like they got a sort of sound going with that particular track that they've they've continued on in a lot of ways too so yeah and that's probably why in like the american murder song tours they almost always sing that song it fits with that theme yeah 
and then they redid it on the you know the last album you know one thing i always find funny with their music there's um i noticed again watching devil's carnival and it also happens hallelujah there's a strange dichotomy that happens in the composition or at least the music that plays in the background because you'll have this gorgeous music that sar will compose and then i i forget that he has a big thing for silly B-rated sound effects. So you'll have a moment where, you know, uh, the scorpion has a ring pop and he's putting it on Tamara's hand and kissing it. And there's this gorgeous piano in the background. And then it stops and he goes, I'll be right back. And it goes like, like the little runaway sound from, uh, from any random cartoon. And it always throws me off. But now I realize, oh no, they just have it's a it's a they just they love both the beauty and the silly and they just mix it all in together hallelujah does it as well and it's hilarious i missed the ring pop completely until this watch i watched it like an hour ago and and i swear to god i just missed it i was like is that a fucking ring pop it was just so it was so great it was such a great i I like i love these films because you can you can watch them a million times and like never you know I don't. I don't think I ever realized it was a ring pop. I thought it was like one of those like cheap little like quarter things, like you get in like the supermarket. So did I. Yeah, I thought it was like I thought it was like a ring that you get in a gumball machine because like like Meriwether obviously all the uh, Marywood, excuse me, all the jewelry is obviously like stupid, you know, fucking dollar store plastic jewelry that you get for kids, um, because money. But but like you know, but yeah, I didn't. I thought it was like a little plastic ring, and then I actually looked at it today. I was like, is that a ring pop oh my god and yeah like Layla said it was so like in the aesthetic of what the guys are like like they love beauty and these things are these melodies are so complex and then and then oh my god it's a fucking ring pop like you know it, it's just so like it's so in their aesthetic it was such a lovely like yeah that's our guys that's who they are one one thing's for sure they will never take themselves too seriously no no no, definitely no. Not. so I have one little thing to sort of have us uh, as an as a quick little cute look ahead and this is purely for chris because the rest of us know what's coming um on a tour stop now i don't know if alleluia as we have seen it had been done or if this was their original intention or whatever it was but something to keep in mind the way they described Alleluia at this particular tour stop was Tales from the Crypt meets the Anti-Glee. <gasps> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, Chris, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. and that's... It's... Yep. <laughs> it's so like good. It's so okay. good. I'm, I was, I, I'm very sold. I was, a sold. I was sold already. Like, I gotta dip out. Um, and go to this conference. I love you both. I love you all. I'll see you next week. Peace out, Cub Scout. This was great. Woo! Love you guys. Love you, Liv. Um, so I think the one thing, I, I guess so, slightly related to that, um, not spoilers, but what, what should I look out for? What should I be most excited about for Alleluia? I mean, obviously everything. I just say heaven. Heaven is not what you will expect. Just heaven. Paul Sabino and heaven. <laughs> because here's the thing is we do have this like weird little advantage where we've seen it a bunch. And I'll tell you, watch it once. 
absorb it and then watch it as many fucking times as you can before. Excellent. Good, good, good. All right, cool. Go into it blind, though. I ain't telling you shit about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, obviously, that's spoilers. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm having very good vibes about this. So I'm very excited for the next episode. Yeah, I, I've always said I think Ali is the, like, the best movie of their three. So I'm really? very excited for you know, the next episode and to get your, your feeling on it. Oh, God, I really hope we're not setting this up. So I was I was watching a video. I think it was um, the I guess like the the equivalent like the red carpet premiere of Devil's Carnival, and the, I think I don't even, I think it was both. I don't know if the the interviewer was asking Darren about this or Terrence about this. I think it was Darren. Um, so they were they were asking them um, about this movie, and this movie described as like more accessible uh to general viewers than repo but at the same time more fucked up or more macabre in a way and i uh, like so uh, w- would you say that's an accurate um depiction of that because like i i always thought like maybe that maybe it's just it was a reflection about the circles i hung out with in college because I thought like Repo was like the biggest thing ever, and I felt like it always had like I I knew that Repo had this cult following, but I feel I felt like it had like this really strong mainstream type of appeal. Uh, uh, and I I don't know. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to like work my feelings around it because I feel like I maybe maybe I'm being biased because I obviously love Repo a lot, and I know a lot of friends who love Repo. Um. So I just, uh, but right, you you would agree with that sentiment? Oh yeah, because it's how I felt after. I, I'm I'm gonna try to not give too much away, but after having seen Alleluia and then watching this, I preferred Hell over Heaven. So I'm agreeing with you. I like I do think it's more macabre in a scenario where you'd rather go to hell than go to heaven. That must say something. Uh, would you say that's the same in relation to like Repo? Like, would, do you think this? Uh, do you think like like Devil's Carnival compared to Repo? Like, is Devil's Carnival more uh, accessible, relatable, uh, or is it just because that, that's what Ooh. that's how they were describing? I don't know. They were they were originally comparing like the like the access points between Repo and Devil's Carnival, and I I thought like well. I, I felt like Repo hit a lot of boxes in terms of genres. Like there was cyberpunk and sci-fi and dystopia and schlock and horror. So I thought there was more, more avenues for people to get into the fandom through Repo. Than, uh, but, I, but with with Devil's Carnival, like I feel like it does with much broader topics that that, that have been like the big questions that people have been philosophizing about for like decades, like hell or morality or, you know, like, or like fables and, um, or, you know, like re, re, redefining or re hashing this oral tradition, like in, in a new weird, kishy, uh, and, and fun, bizarre way. And I, it's, I, I mean, again, I, I still haven't seen a hallelujah, but I'm just trying to think like, what is a more, just for, for, for someone like me, or if you're trying to corrupt a new soul, would Repo be more accessible, or like would Devil's Carnival be more accessible? I mean, or are they are are they too disparate? 
I, I just think that they're sort of almost incomparable in that sense, because I think they each offer something different. Like we had a whole conversation with Liv about repo and what that does for an entire community that was unintentional people that created it. So I think there's that level of of accessibility. Um, I, I do think that there is something different for, for everyone. So I'm like, I said, I, I just don't think that in terms of that, they're, they're comparable because they're all so beautifully done. Um, in their own right and they have something for everyone again in their in their own right i think i kind of struggle with that question actually because in my mind the atmosphere of devil's carnival and the atmosphere of alleluia are two very different things so when you're asking like how is it emotionally accessible to me alleluia is but devil's carnival not quite as much so i don't really know how to answer that question they're there's two very different atmospheres going on. The reasons I relate to Alleluia are so different compared to the reasons I even, I like Devil's Carnival, so. Maybe we circle back to this, like, after Alleluia, question mark? When when Chris has seen it and we can, yeah. So we're, we're issuing a recess on this issue. Yes. We're, yes. We are issuing a recess on that question. To kind of throw I guess, my two cents in that uh, and agreeing with, with the rest of you, like they are so vastly different. Well, like Repo, it's, it's a little convoluted at times in the plot. And it, you can put it in that same idea as like a Rocky Horror that, you know, it's, it's a fun goth, you know, cult thing. And Liv always says it best. And I think one of you repeated it last week. It's, it's trash, but it's our trash. It's like, it's not. It was a, Liv. Yeah. Um, where, you know, with these two movies, there's more of a really solid plot you get from point A to point B to point C and et cetera, et cetera, where, and especially not going into things like, you know, I don't even want you to know the cast of this next movie. You know, it's got more, a little bit more mainstream, but this is the kind of movie that in a way, if this was a, a Hollywood picture that was funded by, let's say, Lionsgate, Universal, Paramount, whoever the fuck. You know, this would be, I think, have that potential of reaching more people. So your comment about accessibility, like, I think some people would would appreciate Hallelujah as a whole more than, let's say, Repo or even the Devil's Carnival, just because it's it's a much bigger, the bigger picture of it. Mm, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Very good. Um, great. Well, I think. I think this was, I think we covered so much great points throughout this episode. Uh, let's wrap it up with ratings. I would say six out of five damn souls. That's what I would give it. I, I, this was, this is very, I, I really appreciate, you know, having like these dialogues because um, it just gives a really articulate way of like, processing and digesting what i what i what i know i like about the film but don't know why i like it as much as i do and like just everyone giving giving these points of analysis and everyone having like their own uh povs and own quirks like for me like i love theology so that's like the main crux of what i enjoyed about this film but like you people are coming at this like oh i i have like a really 
big background in music and and um sociology or lgbt stuff and it's like this is like i love all these uh background context that we we feed into it and it's just like this like just talking about this is really cool really exciting so uh i really can't wait for alleluia so we can talk more about this kind of stuff i mean I, chris i'm gonna give it the same as you which totally not biased at all because i haven't seen this 65 million times so <laughs> that's it yeah. only 65 million i'm sure it's more than that. i'm sure it's more like 666 see layla all right i'll give it i'll give it a nine carnies out of ten Wait, what? Wait, did the other Cardi die? What happened? <laughs> no, we went to wait, heaven. Wait, the other Cardi is. Wait, did they go up to heaven? I. You know what it is. You know what it is. At at the beginning, there there are just way too many times a new person says hello. As soon as that ends, I'm like, all right, this movie can start. <laughs> I guess I'll give this movie a uh, two pennies uh, face up there. Mm, yes, very good. Okay, well, on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And again, uh, next week, we are reviewing the follow-up. So, Alleluia, the Devil's Carnival. Um, it's I we're super excited. So, uh, make sure. Chris is super excited. Yes, I'm. I'm. I am extra excited. Uh, not gonna bury that lead. Uh, or I am burying that lead. Whatever. What? Whatever that goes. Uh, so make sure you watch the movie. Um, that's also free on Prime. So again, we're not sponsored, but thanks, Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so do your homework, um, uh, study up and, uh, get, uh, stay tuned or get excited because we're going to have all of our lovely guests back and we're just going to cap it off with one giant grand finale and it's gonna be great. So thank you so much for listening and don't forget, off the hell we go! go!